Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to a chat about the history of tennis. I was thinking about tennis this week because uh, the Australian Open is on. It's uh, starting this week down in my old home city of Melbourne. And I used to go. I used to go along to the, uh, the Australian Open when I was a kid. Go and see Pete Sampras and uh, Andre Agassi and Serena Williams and Martina Hingis. I, I, tell, you what, I tell you what, I had a, such a crush on Martina Hingis when I was, I was like eight years old. Anyway, uh, this was because my mum, she bloody loves the tennis. She does. Hello, mum. Hope you enjoy this episode. Sorry all of those... Tennis lessons you uh, paid for for me didn't end up with it, with uh, me becoming the next Leighton Hewitt. Anyway, um, despite being uh, oh, a bit of a boring game, sorry tennis fans and sorry mum, tennis nonetheless has a very interesting and also a very long history. There's a lot going on uh, with the history of tennis uh, as not just a professional sport, but also as a as a historical pastime enjoyed over the centuries by European royalty. And while the game obviously has changed a little bit over the years, it actually hasn't changed all that much, to be honest, as, uh, as we'll talk about. Now, this is, after nearly 300 episodes, uh, only the second sports-related episode I've ever done, weirdly enough. Uh, I'll have to keep an eye out for more interesting sports for us to get across, because learning a bit more about the history of tennis was, uh, was a lot more engaging than I expected. Um, and uh, so if there are sports that you'd like to hear uh, a history of, let me know, because uh, I, I feel it's an area that we could uh, look into a little further, um, the history of, uh, of certain organised or professional sports. But today, it's all about tennis. We're going to learn about the origins of the sport, its development under royal patronage, and uh, its evolution from an indoor game played by kings to an outdoor game played by extremely well-paid athletes. Uh, we'll also talk about some of the ridiculous traditions and terminology involved with tennis, including, of course, its completely arcane scoring system. A lot to get across today, as ever, so let's get underway. Let's not waste any more time and get stuck into the history of tennis. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 12th century, if you'll believe it. A long, long, almost a thousand years ago, long before televised broadcasts and Kia sponsorships and Bruce McAvaney. Uh, in, the in the 12th century, in France, um, the uh, medieval precursor to today's tennis was played in monasteries. Now, this game was known as jeu de palme, uh, which can be translated as game of the hand, because at its inception, the players didn't use rackets. They would set themselves up in, uh, in a little courtyard. The game was often played outdoors, sometimes indoors, but usually outdoors, a little courtyard. Um, uh, they would loosely string a net from one wall to the other, and they would smack a ball back and forth across the net with their bare hands, just like kids playing rounders at lunchtime at school. And as far as I can tell, um, these balls that these old monks used, they were solid. They weren't inflated. They weren't hollow. They were made of cork, usually, with a fabric covering. So you'd have, you'd have, I'll tell you this, you'd have bloody sore hands by the end of the game. Um, and perhaps this is why jeu de palme players started using gloves and then, much later, rackets. Although it did take them 
400 years to figure that one out. It wasn't until the 16th century that rackets had well and truly caught on everywhere when playing this game. But all the same, Jeu de Pomme had the same basic idea as tennis does today, and its core principle remains unchanged after almost 1,000 years. Um, uh, that core principle being shared with some other sports like volleyball or golf uh, being, no, no, please, I don't want the ball. Get it away from me. I will I will hit the ball away from me as far as possible. No, I hate the ball. Don't get it anywhere near me. As opposed to some other sports like, I don't know, soccer or rugby that have the complete opposite approach, which is, yes, 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 please give me the ball. I want the ball. I love the ball. I'm going to take the ball from you. If you don't give it to me, give me the ball. Uh, in any case, by the time we get to the 16th century, rackets have more or less completely replaced gloves, and while the game is still referred to as jeu de pomme by some, it, uh, it's beginning to take on its new name, tennis. Now, it's thought that the word tennis comes from the Anglo-Norman verb tenes, uh, which means receive or take, and this is because the person serving in a game of tennis all the way back then would yell out, Tenez, uh, right before their serve, to alert the receiving player as a courtesy that play was about to begin so they could prepare themselves for the, for the incoming serve. Very sporting, of course, but also, when you think about it, absolutely hilarious and something I wish, I very much wish was still a part of the rules today. Imagine having to yell, tennis, before every point at, at something like the Australian Open. That'd be absolutely brilliant. And you know what? Let's not restrict it to tennis. Imagine if bloody Pat Cummins, right? Imagine if he had to yell cricket as he came in off the run-up or if, or if Dusty had to yell footy as he, as he sent one sailing through the uprights from the 50, mate. Listen to me go on. Listen to me talk about sports. Don't even worry about it. Unbelievable. Hang on. Um, I'll, see if, uh, I'll see if I can do one for, uh, for rugby league. All right, here we go. Um, imagine if um, uh, Ray Warren... He, he's the only NRL person I know because of the 12th man. Uh, oh, no. Hang on. Wait. There was another bloke. The... Um, the, the homophobe who got kicked off the team. I don't know his name. Anyway, imagine if Ray Warren, right? Imagine if he had to, he had to yell rugby as he scored a try or, or, or tried to score. I don't know. I, I should have quit while I was ahead. Some bloody Queenslander I am. Whoops. Anyway, tennis. Let's, uh, let's get back to tennis here. Uh, back in the 16th century, the game was uh, really beginning to take shape as the sport that we refer to today as real tennis. Uh, that's real as in royal, real, uh, not not real as in genuine. It's, it, it's not that the fans of old forms of this game are being super gatekeeper or anything. No, it's called real tennis because it became very popular amongst early modern royalty. Kings like Henry VIII of England and Francis I of France, they bloody loved the sport they did, and it is still known in some circles as the sport of kings. The fact that it was so popular with uh, Western European royalty uh, only made it more popular with more people, um, and it became a very common pastime of the aristocratic classes in, in Western Europe, particularly in England and France. Monarchs obviously had a huge amount of social and cultural sway, uh, and so when kings like, for instance, Louis X of France took to the game in the 14th century and began to order the construction of dedicated indoor courts for it, it caught on like nobody's business. Louis, Louis X is a, a very important figure in the history of tennis. He is the first specific person known by name to have played the sport. Um, and his enthusiasm for uh, tennis caught on amongst not just French royalty, but other royal European houses as well. Uh, although I will say that uh, tennis wasn't always good for the longevity of the kings who played the sport, such as Louis X himself in 1316, 
He died after becoming exhausted after a long game. Uh, he guzzled down a huge amount of wine and either caught pneumonia or was poisoned. Either way, he went far too hard on the old Real tennis court, it seems. Uh, then, over a century later, King James I of Scotland was assassinated while trying to escape through a sewer. Now, you might think, okay, well, what's that got to do with tennis? Well, it seems that James I was so sick of losing tennis balls down the drainage system of his palace and in, into the sewer, into the royal sewer, that he had a grill specifically installed in the sewer to prevent balls from flowing down out to wherever the sewerage went. And when he had tried to escape from his assassins via the sewer, he ended up being trapped by the grill along with all those missing tennis balls and uh, as a result lost his life. And then as um, as particularly alert listeners will remember in, uh, in 1498, poor old Charles VIII of France, he died after bonking his head on a doorframe while rushing on his way to his tennis court. And in doing so, he became the second French king to die of bonking his head on a doorframe after Louis III in 882. For more details, episode 241, History's Weirdest Deaths, part three, get across it. Anyway, royal deaths aside, tennis flourished throughout the 16th century and beyond with a very early governing body, the Corporation of Tennis Professionals, chartered by the French king Charles IX in 1571. In 1599, its rules were, uh, were, were formalised and published for the first time, and uh, holy moly, that book must have been bloody enormous, because while, in principle, real tennis is the same as the modern tennis we know today, you know, hit the ball over a net in a way that makes it very difficult for your opponent to hit the ball back, um, there is that in common between real tennis and, and modern tennis, but um, uh, beyond that... Oh my goodness, real tennis is ridiculously hard to understand. Modern tennis is reasonably simple, right? Even if, unlike most sports, the judges, referees and match officials considerably outnumber the players. Real tennis, on the other hand, absolutely absurd. I actually watched some professional real tennis. It's still played today. Um, I watched this to try to get an understanding of the game. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have... No idea. The sport is played inside, um, and not only are you allowed to hit the ball off the wall, sometimes, some sections of wall you can, others you can't, um, you seem to have to serve the ball in a way that has the ball hit a little angled roof thing that extends part of the way into the court. Unlike, you know, modern tennis, where you serve in a very straightforward and direct manner by hitting the ball either fast or very fast, in real tennis, there are a million different serving styles and techniques, all of which involve this weird pitched roof thing. And I'm pleased to say that these serving techniques have the most terrific names. There's the sidewall, the underarm twist, there's the boomerang. Okay, sure, maybe they're not that exciting, but let me hit you with some more, right? Like the giraffe, the railroad, and best of all, this is not a joke. This is a legitimate sporting term in the so-called sport of kings, right? the serving technique known as the African hunting dog. The court for real tennis is also absolutely mystifying. It's very long and it's also asymmetrical. It has a service end where you serve and a receiving end, uh, which is very excitingly referred to as well as the hazard end. Um, and in addition to this little sloped roof that I mentioned that extends into the court itself, uh, the penthouse it's called, the court itself is covered in 
all sorts of different lines. And again, some of these have brilliant names. There's boring stuff like the service line and the six yard line. But there are also lines called things like the last gallery and the door. And the best line of all, the one yard worse than last line. Then on, on top of all the weird rules that the game itself has, there are also regional variants down to the specific court, right? Like depending on which court you're playing on, the rules will change. Uh, things like the in and out of bounds area. They vary from court to court. You're usually not allowed to bounce the wall, the ball off the windows, but some courts let you hit the ball between the windows while others don't. Um, some courts have roof beams and sometimes you're allowed to hit the ball through the roof beams, but also... Again, at different courts, sometimes you're not. The game is so wild. It's so confusing. It's all over the place. And when I tell you that modern tennis inherited not just the principles of play from real tennis, but also its scoring system, you might have a greater understanding of why tennis today is so, so weird when it comes to things like its scoring. But look, full credit to the people who are out there still playing real tennis, keeping a centuries-old tradition alive. And even if they're not doing it for millions of dollars in front of millions of people, it really is very seriously terrific that this old sport is still alive to this very day. But as the years passed, and as we move towards today's modern era and head into the 19th century, a new version of the sport emerged. One that would, of course, in the fullness of time, become a popular international pastime for people of all stripes, not just the aristocracy of Western Europe. The popularity of real tennis waned as this new form of the game took hold. Um, however, before it faded into the background, one final thing about real tennis, right? Real tennis would play a small but very significant role in one of the world's most important historical events. Because on the 20th of June, 1789, members of the French Third Estate came together and took an oath not to separate and to reassemble wherever necessary until the constitution of the kingdom is established. This oath was a huge moment in what grew to become the French Revolution, one of the most significant historical events to have taken place in the last few centuries, full stop. And this oath was made on a real tennis court. And to this day, it is known as the Tennis Court Oath. Anyway, we can move on from real tennis to real tennis. Thank you very much. Uh, the tennis we know today, which is sometimes referred to as lawn tennis to distinguish it from real tennis, because, of course, it was, to begin with, played on lawns. And to begin the story of lawn tennis, we move past the medieval and the early modern period into the 19th century, and we meet a British bloke named Walter Clopton Wingfield, who was instrumental in bringing the modern game of tennis into the world. In the back half of the 19th century, very many people were experimenting with new forms of tennis, uh, with a couple of very important changes being made. For one, people were playing it outside instead of inside on croquet lawns and the like. Very, very nice way. Pleasant day to spend a sunny day out on the lawn. Whacking a ball about would have been very good fun. But this was only made possible by the technology of the day. Uh, and not just lawnmowers, which, just as with football, were important in actually providing a, a playing space, but also with the invention of vulcanised rubber, which allowed people to experiment with new, hollow and very bouncy balls. Compared to the solid cork balls of real tennis, the hollow balls of lawn tennis enabled the game to be played in all new ways and in all new places. 
But as this was very much an experimental phase for tennis fans everywhere, there wasn't much agreement on things like the rules and even other things like the size and even the shape of a court on which you played the game. All sorts of things were up in the air. And this is where Wingfield come in, because old mate Wingfield, his role in the history of tennis was to help to standardise the game and unite its players under a consistent, codified set of rules. Although, he got off to a very strange start in doing so. In 1873, Wingfield designed a brand new style of court for lawn tennis to be played on. He was very proud of his design, it seemed, because he went out and patented it and everything. But this court happened to be hourglass-shaped. Now, imagine the rectangular shape of, a, of the modern tennis court, right? And now imagine it getting squeezed in, in the middle. Uh, so, essentially a shorter net, right? The, the boundary lines drawn in towards it, rather than being parallel to each other. Um, the, the, the boundaries of the court, it's kind of hard to explain. The boundaries of the court were basically a rectangle with a belt on, two trapezoids with their short ends next to each other. This design didn't catch on. It won't surprise you to learn, uh, rather obviously. But um, uh, this wasn't the only innovation that Wingfield brought to the sport of tennis because he included all sorts of other weird rules for serving and scoring as well as some very interesting terminology. And some of all of this survived, while some didn't. Wingfield consulted with other tennis, en- tennis enthusiasts like a fellow named Harry Jem, his friend Algario Pereira. Uh, these two had established the world's first ever tennis club in 1874, the Leamington Tennis Club. And slowly but surely, with the, uh, with the help and assistance of people like Jem and Pereira, Wingfield drew up formalised rules for this new outdoor variant of the game, which he called Sphiristiki. Very catchy name, comes from the Greek for spheristic, but very quickly just became nicknamed Sticky, Sphiristiki. Um, interestingly, this name was anything but sticky. It did not, in fact, stick. People called the game lawn tennis or outdoor tennis and then eventually just tennis. But Wingfield's contributions to the game uh, went beyond his failed attempts to revolutionise the uh, the shape of the court and, and the, the name of the sport itself. Uh, went beyond the rules and the terminology because this bloke, he also seems to have been something of an entrepreneur. He was responsible for the spread of the game beyond the aristocratic upper classes when he launched the sale of all-inclusive boxed tennis sets. These kits very conveniently had everything you needed to play tennis um, and played a huge role in popularising the sport as people bought the kits with, uh, with the rackets and the balls and the nets and everything that you'd need to play and set these these kits up for themselves and and started to to try the game out for themselves and ultimately in 1875 with tennis growing and growing in popularity uh, some of Wingfield's rules for lawn tennis were adopted and promoted by London's Marlebone Cricket Club uh, but I will I will mention not all of the rules made it uh, they got they got rid of Win- Wingfield's weird serving rules for instance um, they made adjustments to other little bits and pieces like the height of the net whatever else but broadly speaking they kept they kept a lot of the other stuff that Wingfield had put together um, and Wingfield himself was very heavily influenced as all tennis enthusiasts were uh, by, the, by the older form of the game by what we call real tennis today which is why of course tennis has such strange terminology, and a completely baffling scoring system. Let's get into it here, right? Because this 
is uh, this is the legacy that Wingfield left for us. Um, he was a big proponent of the French terminology in use with the game, which is why we have terms like deuce for when players are tied at 40 all. Deuce comes from the French a deux de jeu, uh, two points from the game, um, and is still used today in, in professional tennis to describe, as I say, a situation where, uh, where players are at 40 points each. We'll come to exactly what that means in, uh, in just a little bit. Uh, but another term that's very confusing when it comes to tennis scoring is the term love, which is used instead of zero. If you're on zero points, you're, you're described to be on love points. It's, I, I, I don't know. It's very weird. The, uh, the etymology of this term is, uh, is a little uncertain. Uh, it could be from the French l'oeuf, uh, the egg, because an egg is the same shape as a zero. And before you scoff, before you think, well, no, that's definitely a false etymology, consider that also in cricket, right, a zero, zero runs, this is referred to as a duck, which potentially could come from a duck's egg, also referring to zero. So look, it's it, it's not certain, but it at least is possible that this is where these terms came from. But inter- interestingly, uh, the word racket, right, this doesn't come from French it actually comes from Arabic, rakat, which means, very neatly, the palm of the hand. Just like all those French monks were using all those centuries ago, and that term, it's come full circle and is now used to describe the implement used to play the game of tennis in the first place. But as weird as some of tennis's terminology is, it is nowhere near as weird as tennis's scoring, which... Uh, I've been I've, I've sort of been talking about assuming you actually know how it works and if you don't oh boy get yourself ready because I cannot think of a sport with a stranger scoring system. Most sports are reasonably simple, right? Score more points than your opponent and you win. All you have to do is keep track of the points each team or each player scores and in the end whoever has the biggest number is the winner or I guess with some sports whoever has the smaller number in the case of something like golf or I guess there's darts where you're trying to reduce your score to zero whatever forget about all that because tennis is ridiculous when it comes to scoring systems it doesn't get any bloody weirder than tennis you don't start in tennis on zero as i mentioned you start on love the egg perhaps but then if you win your first point you you don't get one point you don't even get two points you get 15 points so you go to 15 the score would then be 15 love Now, your second point also gets you another 15 points. So, okay, sure, consistent at least, right? Now you're on 30. The score is 30, love. But then for the next win, you don't get 15 points. You get 10 points, which takes you to 40. So now it's 40, love, or it's 40, 15, or 40, 30. And then after that, you don't get any more points because another win will win you the game, not the match. That's a different thing, just the game, uh, and will give you a new type of point, a point towards winning the set. Except if your opponent is also on 40 points, then it's not 40 all. So a game of tennis, you know, it could go 15, go love all, 15 love, uh, 30 love, 30, 15, 30, 30, 40, 30. And then it doesn't go to 40, 40. It goes to deuce, right? And then you have to win two points in a row to win the game. So if you win a point on 40, you go to a score called advantage. And then if you lose the next point, you go back to 40. So the scoring progression is rather than, you know, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 
love 15, 30, 40, sometimes advantage, sometimes back to 40 game. Also, just to make things even more confusing, right? Technically speaking, there is no difference between 30 all and deuce because deuce refers to a state in the game where you are two points away from winning. Um, and when you're at 30 all, you have to win the next two points to to win the game. So the, the scoring system, we're not even across half of it yet. And the scoring system is already completely baffling, right? Because we're nowhere near finished with the confusion. When you win a game, that's what I mentioned before, right? You get one point towards winning a set. But to win a set, you have to win six games. But you also have to win by two games. So you can win, for example, 6-2, 6-3, 6-4, 6-6 love, whatever. But you can't win 6-5. You have to win 7-5. Unless it gets to 6-6, in which case these days there's the modern invention of the tiebreaker game. And in this game, they don't use 15-30-40. They use regular 1-2-3 first to 7. But you've got to win by two points. Except in the last set of a match, because for the longest time, there were no tiebreakers then. You just kept playing until someone won two games in a row. The longest recorded tennis match in history lasted for over 11 hours, played across three days, and the last set went for over eight hours. It was played between John Isner and Nicholas Mahut at the uh, at Wimbledon in, uh, in 2010. Isner finally won the last set 70 games to 68 and therefore won the match. Uh, although they have taken measures to make sure this sort of thing never happens again. They've changed the rules. Uh, now tiebreakers do kick in uh, in the last set at 10 games all. So, try to recap here. You've got games of 15, 30, 40, the first of six games with a lead of two wins a set, except for when tiebreakers get involved, but whatever. But then, on top of this whole business to, to win sets, you've got to win a different number of sets depending on what type of game of tennis you're playing. Sometimes it's best of one. Most games, most sorry, matches, matches of tennis uh, are played as best of three. And very rarely, um, uh, matches of tennis are played as best of five. Uh, only high-level professional men's matches play best of five. But I think, look, suffice to say, scoring in tennis is utterly, absolutely, ridiculously, and totally needlessly convoluted. But look, They've been scoring tennis like this for centuries, and they're not about to stop now. I do want to say, however, I want to share with you what is, unbelievably, an even more, the most ridiculous thing about tennis's scoring system. I'm not saying they should change it, right? Tennis is a game, it's a, it's a sport that is steeped in history and tradition. They've been doing it for this long. I don't even know whether it's worth trying to... Uh, trying to change, I don't want to upset the tennis apple cart here, but the most ridiculous thing about tennis's scoring system is the fact that because scores are reset every time a game or a set is won, it is possible to win more individual points than your opponent and still lose the match. And that actually happened in that 2010 match that I mentioned before, the Isna Mahut match, right? Isner, he only won a total of 400, only 478 individual points, while Mahut won 502. And Mahut still lost, even though he won more individual points than his opponent. Honestly, this isn't even uncommon. In 2009, Roger Federer beat Andy Roddick um, uh, in, in the Wimbledon final, despite winning fewer games. 
But then a decade later, Karma came back to bite him on the ass because Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer in the 2019 Wimbledon final with Djokovic having won fewer games. Now, hearing about this, right, hearing about this absurd convoluted system that sometimes doesn't even reward the person who wins the greatest number of points of tennis, right, you might wonder, why? Why do they have this absurd system? And the short answer, I'm very sorry to say, is we just don't know. When it comes to the whole 15-30-40 thing, um, there is a, there's this popular theory that clocks were used to score games of tennis because you would move the minute hand to 15 and then 30 and then 45 as like a, a like a scoreboard. Uh, but then 40 was used instead of 45 to account to account for the need to win by two. You'd go to 40, then 50 for advantage. Look, it, it actually doesn't matter. We don't need to get into this origin story too deeply because it is definitely not true for a very simple reason. Clocks didn't have minute hands back when real tennis was invented. You'll remember from episodes 101, 102, history of clocks, get across them. It wasn't until almost the 18th century that clocks began to routinely have minute hands. Uh, before that, they they only measured the hours. So it definitely it definitely isn't because of that. And uh, disappointingly, I, again, I'm sorry to say, we just don't know how or why this weird scoring convention emerged. It could have been that old real tennis courts were 90 feet in length and the server would change their serving position based on the score, moving for 15 feet and then another 15 feet and then 10 feet. But even this isn't certain. And when it comes to the weird game set match score reset system, I have even less of an idea. I couldn't find anything concrete about the tennis scoring system. Um, most answers seem to be variations on the theme of its tradition, uh, while also talking about the strategic depth and the excitement it adds to the game. And look, I... I'll let people enjoy what they want to enjoy, but in fairness, maybe they do have a point about the excitement. It, it definitely is more exciting to have, you know, big pivotal moments like points where an entire set is on the line. It certainly raises stakes. Imagine, you know, in a game of like, uh, in a game of footy, Australian rules football is divided into quarters, right? So you play for four quarters. Lots, lots of sports are, are done in the same way. But imagine instead if it were divided into five playing segments and at the end of each playing segment the score reset so you win the first set uh you go up 1-0 in 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 overall sets and that could lead to a really really exciting moment where in like the, the closing minutes of of, of, a, of a segment of, of play you know that the scores are tied and they only need one point and they're going to get a huge advantage if they do it, it adds a lot of stakes to to individual points that are being played i can certainly see that but it does also have the side effect of making the whole system so 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 complicated and confusing but i don't know that's tennis anyway we can move on now from talking about the uh, the scoring involved in tennis and talk instead about its development, how it went from being, uh, you know, thrown these rules thrown together by uh, by Wingfield, how this uh, this sport was uh, was structured and codified and developed over the years into the modern sport that uh, that we all know today. And here's something um, very interesting and uh, also kind of cool about uh, about tennis, about the rules for the sport as put forth by the Marylebone Cricket Club in 1875. In the intervening century and a half. The rules of tennis just haven't really changed that much at all. Still played in a rectangular court, still got a net in the middle, you still serve from the back line into one of the front boxes, you still can't hit it outside the line, still can't let it bounce twice. At its core, the obviously scoring notwithstanding, tennis isn't a hugely complicated game. And I really actually quite like the fact that this game is, largely speaking, unchanged since its inception. 
And also, as, as much fun as we've had at the expense of the scoring system, I also do kind of like that they've stuck with this system just, just for the sake of, I don't know, weird, harmless tradition. Uh, a tradition that has grown and grown from, well, I, I was going to say humble origins, certainly not hu- humble anything but, in fact, even today, tennis still has something of an, of an upper-class association. But it's still fair to say that tennis has grown from a, a small-scale sport, certainly a small-scale sport for aristocrats, to become one of the biggest professional sports in the world. And all this goes back to 1877, when the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club adopted the MCC's rules and held what would be the first ever lawn tennis championship in the rich and leafy London suburb of Wimbledon. Known officially as the Championships, and uh, colloquially as just Wimbledon, this tournament has a very, very interesting origin story. Because today, of course, it is, I would say, the most prestigious tennis, tennis championship in the world. But it started off all the way back in 1877 as a fundraiser for the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club so they could repair their lawn roller. This 1877 tournament was won in front of a crowd of 200 people by a bloke named Spencer Gore, who received 12 gold guineas and a silver cup as a trophy, as well as being named the All England Lawn Tennis Club Single-Handed Champion of the World. I really do wish they continued to give out these superlative titles to championships of major sporting events, but I don't love the fact that it is the All England champion of the world. It does really seem like the Americans aren't the only ones, after all, who get up to this sort of nonsense with their World Series and the like. But look, in any case, tennis continued to catch on, buoyed by tournaments like Wimbledon, and interest in the sport grew rapidly towards the beginning of the 20th century. Four years after the first Wimbledon championship, the US held their first major tournament in 1881, known then as the US National Championship, today referred to as, of course, the US Open. 1881 saw the establishment of the United States National Lawn Tennis Association, which standardised the rules for tennis in the US as it continued to grow, as before then there were, there were, were different rules depending on uh, which region you're in. And uh, the, the spread and the legitimization and the standardization of tennis was, uh, w- was enormously supported by the, the U.S. National Lawn Tennis Association. And tennis has been a, a huge sport in, in the United States ever since. But here's something both very interesting and also very positive about the early stages of tennis as a sport. It was very, very early in including women in its tournament structures. While women's sports are usually relegated to the sidelines even today, women's tennis has always been a much larger part of the sport compared to many other professional sports. Men obviously still hog most of the limelight, as is the case with more or less every sport out there these days. But all the same, women's tennis is on a much better footing than other women's sports. And the reason for that is that women were competing in major tournaments like Wimbledon very early on indeed. In Wimbledon, the first ladies singles championship was held in 1884, while in the US, um, women joined the national championships over there in 1887. So women did start playing tennis at a high level very, very early on, much earlier than than they did in, in other sports. And look, I'm not trying to say that tennis is 
perfect when it comes to the way that uh, gender in, gender imbalances and, and differences have been handled. But uh, certainly, it's done a lot better for itself uh, than than many other professional sports. I, th- I think that's I think that's very fair to say. Anyway, in 1891, the Championnat de France was inaugurated, the French national championship. Although it didn't achieve significant status until 1925, uh, when it was open to all nationalities. Before then, you could only play in it if you were a member of a French tennis club. Uh, However, the first winner of the Championnat de France was a British bloke named H. Briggs. We don't even know this bloke's first name, but we do know that he was British. So I can imagine the French weren't too happy about a a bloody Rosbif winning their uh, their first tennis championship. Uh, A Rosbif, by the way, this is a mildly derogatory term I discovered the French use for the English based on the idea that the English like to eat roast beef. Uh, it, It is... You know, I think just objectively funny to think of the English as as being called, you know, a, a roast beef by a, a French person. But uh, it's not really all that insulting when you think about it, especially when the French are, you know, going about eating frogs and snails and bits of horse. But I don't know. There you are. Anyway, the Championnat de France, it would in time open up to people across the world. And in doing so, it became the French Open, also known as Roland Garros, uh, named after the famous aviator. Not uh, not a famous tennis player. Uh, Roland Garros, uh, you can find out more about him, of course, in episode two, 248, The History of Flight, part two, get across it. But uh, there are a couple of other uh, tournaments I want to tell you about in the opening stage, in the earlier stages of, uh, of tennis as a sport. Uh, the first international tennis tournament, it called itself the Davis Cup. Uh, it was where players uh, represented their nation, still do today. Uh, even today, these uh, they're the best players in the world assemble and uh, and play for their countries rather than for themselves. It started in the year 1900, and it still goes on today. Australia has won it 28 times. We are very bloody good at tennis. Thank you very much. Bloody Pat Rafter, Leighton Hewitt, Mark Philippoussis, they're out there getting it done, although, admittedly, the US have won the Davis Cup 32 times to our 28. But look, still, per capita, we're the best, mate. Bloody love it. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned before women's tennis. Despite women's tennis being a much more entrenched part of the sport than you might think, unfortunately, it took a long time. Uh, it took until 1962 for the establishment of the women's equivalent of the Davis Cup, uh, started off uh, being known as the Fed Cup. Today, it's known as the Billie Jean King Cup or the Bay, uh, the BJK Cup. And I'll tell you this, our girls, they're getting it done for Australia there as well. We've won seven BJK Cups behind only the US and uh, the Czech Republic when it comes to uh, to the Billie Jean King Cup. So well done, Australia out there, whacking the balls around. We've Again, as I say, very bloody good at tennis. Finally, the last uh, tournament that I want to talk about uh, is, of course, the Australian Open, which was first held in 1905 as the Australasian Championships. Now, this one, of course, due to its remote location compared uh, to the rest of the tennis playing world, it always struggled with attendance, even after 1924, as, as we're going to come to. In the early 20th century, it took a month and a half to get to Australia from Europe, and so... A lot of international players, they skipped the Australasian Championships and look, you know, bugger them, it's their loss. But in time, it grew and grew as uh, as transport and travel to Australia became easier and, and less time intensive. And uh, especially since 1988, the Australian Open has completely taken off after it moved from Kooyong to Melbourne Park. But look, let's uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves here because... I want to go back. I want to go back to uh, 1924 here. This is a year, a very important year, a year I mentioned before, uh, a crucial year in the history of tennis. It was the year that the International Lawn Tennis Federation became 
the official governing body for international tennis. It was recognised by all the major national governing bodies around the world, and this led to the creation of the International Tennis Majors. Today, these tournaments are referred to as Grand Slam events, uh, and they are those four uh, tournaments we talked about before, not including the uh, the Davis Cup and the, the BJK Cup, uh, the, 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 the tournaments held in Britain, in the US, in France, and in Australia. These are the ones that became the four majors, and to this very day, they remain the biggest and most important tennis tournaments in the world. The British, US, and Australian tournaments, they became majors in 1924, while the French one was added a year later in 1925 when they, as I say, opened it up to, uh, to anyone of, uh, of any uh, national allegiance or, or club membership. And uh, you might notice here that I've sort of taken great pains to avoid referring to these tournaments as opens, uh, because during this period, they were not. Today, this is what we call them, the Australian Open, the French Open. But back then, they very much were not opens. In 1926, a tour circuit for professional players began under the auspices of American event promoter C.C. Pyle, and anyone who was paid to play tennis professionally, they were barred from entering any major held by the International Lawn Tennis Federation. Now, this sounds a little weird, but it was actually very common in sports at the time. The Olympics, for example, they restricted entry to amateur athletes for a very, very long time. And this was the case with tennis too. You could either play professionally, have a contract, get paid, play a certain number of professional matches per year, tennis was very big business, or you could play in the ILTF majors. And as you can imagine, all the world's very best players, they quickly went pro, meaning that tennis's pro tours and pro slams became headline events rather than the ILTF's four majors. But then, in truth, even the amateurs, so-called, that played at ILTF events, they weren't, they weren't actually amateurs because there were all these shady backdoor deals that were made to grease their palms and prevent them from going pro. They were given other incentives to stay as, quote-unquote, amateurs, all these expenses and whatever else, these, uh, these you know, brown paper envelope type arrangements. And this, uh, this whole situation was uh, sort of derided very cleverly as shamateurism, right? It was, a, it was a bit of a sham. And it undermined the sport of tennis as a whole. In 1968, the ILTF, it moved away from its old rules about amateurism, and it finally allowed professional players to take part in its majors as well. In other words, these tournaments were opened up to players of all kinds, and the period after 1968 is therefore known as the Open Era, and as such, gave these major tournaments a new name, the Opens. The US Open, the French Open, the Australian Open, and, well, yeah, Wimbledon. No one really calls it the British Open, or, or indeed the Championships, its official name for that matter. But this Open Era, it established the tournament structure that oversees professional tennis to this very day under the authority of not the ILTF, but now just the ITF. They've done away with the lawn, the International Tennis Federation. Every year, four huge tennis tournaments are held. The Grand Slams, uh, kicking off every calendar year in Melbourne. Greatest city on earth with the Australian Open. Every January, the Australian Open is played on a hard-court substance known as Green Set, followed by the French Open, Roland Garros, in May or June on clay. Then Wimbledon, a month or so later on grass. And then finally, the US Open in August or September, also on hardcourt on deco turf, it's called. And these tournaments are huge. They are all worth 
tens of millions, doesn't matter which currency you use, and they attract massive crowds, both locally and internationally, and of course as well, on top of this, on the telly around the world. And broadly speaking, the sport that players play at these tournaments isn't all that different from the sport that was played by medieval kings like Louis X. And it is almost identical to the sport played by Spencer Gore and H. Briggs back in the 19th century. In fact, the only things that have changed about tennis in the last century and a half are tiny little details like the height of the net, the exact dimensions of the court and its lines, uh, the introduction of the tiebreaker system, and uh, the fact that, I don't know, you used to have to have at least one foot on the ground while you were serving. The game continues to evolve uh, in some ways. The introduction of things like Hawkeye and electronic line judges, um, the, the, the ability for players to challenge umpire calls, that sort of thing. But at the, at the end of the day, honestly, tennis is still largely the same after 150 years. And I don't know. There's something to that. I wouldn't say that I'm a huge fan of tennis. As I said, my mum absolutely loves it. And while all those trips to the Australian Open when I was a kid, they never ended up with me liking it as much as she does. Nonetheless, there's something I do like about a sport as old as this one with so much history behind it. From monks whacking a ball around like kids at recess to Louis X playing so hard that he died to Wingfield and his double trapezoid courts all the way through to the modern era. Tennis has a long and very interesting history. But cutting through all of this is a reasonably consistent set of rules, a determinedly arcane scoring system, and all sorts of largely harmless little traditions that really have stood the test of time. I know that tennis does still feel a little bit posh, a little bit out of touch, but I don't know, it's not as bad as golf or polo or whatever else. So if you decide to watch a bit of the Australian Open this summer, cheering on Alex de Minor and Olivia Gadecki, go bloody get them, you good things. Hopefully this episode has given you a new understanding and perhaps a new appreciation of the sport. And if not, if you still find tennis interminably boring, well, who knows? Maybe someone will get so exhausted after a match that they scull a bunch of wine and keel over dead, just like the legendary tennis players of old. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. For once, the uh, the, the the sports fans thing here is is weirdly applicable. It hasn't been very many times, as I say. What have we done? We've done the uh, we've done the the history of football, obviously, uh, episode one hundred thirty eight. Get across that. But um, I guess we've done some Olympic stuff. We've done some we've done some what else? Road races as well. You're going to count that as a sport. There's been a bit of sporting sporting history. I'd love to do more. I'd love to do more, and I'd love to hear from you as to what you think I should do. Um, while we're talking about listeners getting in touch, of course, halfhousehistory.net, use the contact form there, best way to get in touch with the show. I want to uh, express my immense appreciation for all of the people who got in touch uh, telling me how much they loved last week's episode. I was a little worried about it, putting it out, because it wasn't exactly what you've come to expect from the podcast. Um, it was a, a, a pretty, you know, uh, a pretty different approach to take uh, with uh, doing, you know, covering a, a topic more to do with political science than uh, than history. But overwhelmingly, people seem to have liked it. And um, those people who didn't, I also want to thank them very, very sincerely for the uh, constructive criticism 
that was sent through. I uh, had a couple of people getting in touch suggesting ways the episode could have been improved, could have been made a little bit more relevant uh, for, you know, on, on, the, on the history angle. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. And it's something I will definitely keep in mind uh, for future episodes where we maybe talk about theories in political science because uh, it does seem that people enjoyed it but i do want to make sure that i'm making as many people happy as possible so i'll make sure to find a more uh, historical angle to cover it from all the same thank you one and all every single listener who got in touch to share their thoughts uh it was very heartening to get such positive feedback from everyone so thank you very very much indeed i've got some other people i'd like to thank as well while we're on the topic i'd like to thank all the people supporting the show on patreon especially the people who have just signed up this week patreon.com slash half history if you want to join their exalted ranks Gain access to all sorts of stuff, ad-free listening, behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, show notes, uncut episodes, early access, exclusive merch, all sorts of things. And a bunch of people signed up to support the show and gain access to these benefits uh, just this week. I want to thank Natalia Ha-Watson, Bert Yonkira, uh, Kiara, Hovard Iwal heitman Cosman Vajain, Dana Ryan, Eric Vogel. Thank you so much to uh, to these exalted Patreon members who... Uh, can listen to all the uncut episodes, all the burps and the farts and the other stuff that gets cut out, me butchering pronunciation and then desperately Googling how to how to pronounce it before just making it up in all new, excitingly wrong ways. If you want to get across that, you certainly can. Patreon.com slash half history. And if you're wanting uh, to support the show in a rather more tangible fashion, of course, there's always the tea Public shop, halfhousehistory.net. Follow the links there, and you'll uh, you'll find access. So you'll, you'll you'll be able to gain access to all of the uh, all the merch on offer uh, over on uh, over on T Public. Anyway, I want to uh, I want to thank everyone who is supporting the show in the most important way, of course, which is telling people about it, telling their friends, telling their enemies, telling people about whom they feel largely ambivalent. If if there's a tennis fan in your life who you think could do with a dose of knowledge as to the origin of their favourite sport, send this episode over to them. And uh, look, if they're a real, actual, proper tennis nerd, ask them what they think. Tell them to get in touch with me and let me know how well I did in uh, in my little breakdown of, of tennis because uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of very interesting bits and pieces about this sport, some that are, you know, still up in the air to this day. Where did the scoring system actually come from? Why are there these ridiculous terms that, that are still used this very day. So if there's a tennis lover in your life, send over this episode, let them, and, and, and they can let me know what they think. And uh, I'd love to, again, hear any feedback that you have, tennis lover or no, about uh, this episode and uh, and any other, and topic suggestions, all the usual stuff. You hear it at the end of every, every episode. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you back here next week for more nonsense. Hope you're enjoying Monuments and Quarter Ass History and all, that, all the other stuff that tides you over between the, uh, the Sunday releases. Um, and uh, as ever, Closing out the show with a question posed on Reddit. It comes to us from Road Rally One, who asks, "If tennis elbow is from playing too much tennis, how do you get footballs?" <laughs>